This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 458 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Greg Kelly. Now, this is such an important conversation for a multitude of reasons, and you will hear this story is pertaining ultimately to law enforcement, but there are parallels in fire, in EMS, in medicine. When we are charged or we have the responsibility of people's lives, we can either save them, improve them, or we have the power to destroy them. Whether we make a bad call in medicine, whether we don't find someone in a fire, or whether we use poor ethics in law enforcement, in investigation. And Greg's courageous story is a prime example of that. As a promising high school athlete, he was falsely accused of sexual abuse of a child. There are two tragedies in this. Firstly, Greg was convicted, saw three years in prison, and then an additional three years while his legal team fought for his complete innocence. The second part of this tragedy is for six years, the true offender roam free and ultimately committed other sexual assaults. So this is such a powerful conversation and Greg is so courageous in telling it because it must be haunting and having to recount it again must be traumatic. So I admire him for stepping up to tell us, the first responder of the community, his story. It is beautifully portrayed in the documentary Outcry, but I was lucky enough to get him on here as well. But this is a cautionary tale for all of us, whether it's hiring practices and standards, whether it's training and whether it's us, ownership. When we deviate from the ethics, from the mission of what we're supposed to do when we're wearing the badge, we destroy lives. So I hope you listen to this all the way through. I hope you have the humility to learn from it and understand that it isn't pointing fingers or throwing stones in a glass house. It's learning from a tragic domino effect of poor decisions and lack of professionalism that almost destroyed multiple lives in the process. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 450 episodes now. And all I ask in return is that you help share help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Greg Kelly. Enjoy. So, Greg, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I watched Outcry a while ago. I literally rewatched it the last couple of days. Um, so it's kind of surreal. I was telling my wife this the other day, like when I'm, when I'm watching someone on a show and then immediately get to interview them like this. So thank you for taking the time to come on today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm currently in Leander, Texas, the north uh, city of Austin, Texas. Uh, grew up here all my life, born and raised Leander, Texas. Um, 
currently here on break from college. Uh, I got one more year of, of college and continuing to, I got to four more years to play football, uh, and continue that journey and that career. Uh, but yeah, I'm in my hometown. Beautiful. Yeah. And you see, just, just finished the final. So I appreciate you taking some time out. Yeah. All right. Well then chronologically speaking, starting at the very beginning, tell me about where you were born and then tell me your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So of course I was born here in Leander, Texas, uh, actually in Georgetown, Texas. It's ironic because, uh, Georgetown, Texas is also a city where, uh, you know, a, a chapter of my life opened up that, uh, I didn't necessarily ask for. And, uh, but it did. And, but I was born in Georgetown is right next to Leander, but I grew up in Leander. I went to school in Leander, um, made friends, you know, and, and had older brothers, had four older brothers, all athletes. Um, I actually have a sister. She, uh, she lives in another state, but we're close. Um, two parents, a mother and father, and, uh, you know, both parents love uh, their kids very much, worked very hard to make sure that their kids are, uh, are well off what, and what they needed, uh, needed to be successful. And, and uh, I grew up playing sports, you know, um, grew up in middle school playing uh, multiple different sports, basketball, football, a little bit of baseball. And, and then um, went into, you know, high school at Leander High School um, my freshman year. I actually my eighth grade year in middle school, I became friends with a, with a girl named Gabri Anderson. And she, it's a funny story. We actually uh, were friends and we met in math class and um, I wasn't always, you know, the best student in eighth grade just because, you know, I had dyslexia and I, I was suffering from distractions and, um, and I just really didn't necessarily focus on school that much, you know, in eighth grade. Um, I just wanted to play sports. But uh, she's incredibly smart. And uh, we would always, you know, just so happen to sit next to each other in math class. And um, I, I figured out really quick that she was super smart. And I asked her for help multiple times. Um, I really didn't ask for help. I probably just cheated off of her. But <laughs> uh, but uh but we we got to talking a lot man and, and we we grew a liking for each other and we both thought we were cute and we became friends and i think that we were kind of in the friend zone for a little while as we went to slitterbond which is a water park here in texas uh together with friends and stuff like that but ninth grade year came around and i i got the courage to finally ask her out and uh you know she rip 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 rip, rip, rip well she she pretty much told me that um I'll give you a chance. I'll, I'll go out with you. And, and, uh, that just led on to us man, um, falling in love. And we grew up in high school together. She was the dance captain of her dance team. And, um, I was playing football and I got really serious with football to a point where I wanted to go to college and play. And so I ended up going to college or I ended up going, playing football up to a point where I got a scholarship uh, to go to college. I got multiple different scholarships to go to college and, uh, junior year came around and, um, one of the most terrible, you know, horrendous nightmarish things happened, um, where I got accused of a crime I didn't do, uh, not just a crime I didn't do, but one of the most frowned upon crimes, hated crimes in uh, the history of humanity. And, um, I was an 18 year old kid, um, 
with a whole future ahead of him that did not know how to take it uh, because I just didn't live a life um, where I was expected to get accused of something. And I, you know, it, it was a, it was a tragedy because I was such, I was so focused on going to football, um, gaining the respect of people to get it, make it out of Leander and go make something of myself. Um, and, uh, a few things along the, along the line happened with my family being medically ill to put me in a position to live in a house where I had to live a year before an accusation was made about me. Um, and so for eight months I lived in that house, which was ran by, you know, it was an in-home daycare. Um, and I had to do that because my, both my parents were medically ill and they couldn't take care of me. Um, but eight months into that, I moved out. And a month later, after I moved out of that house, um, I was accused of this crime. Well, going back, because obviously we'll, we'll get deep into that in, in a little bit. But going back before, I think, you know, one of the the most um, incredible things is as a freshman, you were playing on a varsity team. Have I got that right? Um, so freshman year, kind of. I mean, freshman year at the end of the year, I got pulled up for varsity for playoffs. But my sophomore and my junior year, I was playing. I had a, I had a fill some shoes. I had to step into some shoes um, and play in the varsity level. Right. So before we even get into to the outcry and obviously the the you know heart wrenching story that followed after that, what was it when you look back now mentally and physically that carried you on that trajectory to being such a phenomenal athlete? Um, I just think, you know, a little bit of just natural born talent, um, got me to, to the door, I guess you could say, and got some heads turning, you know, I was always a little bit bigger, um, physically than everybody else. And, and the other part was just my work ethic. I loved being in the gym. I loved working out. Um, I felt like that was a, that was a, a release for me as far as getting away from, you know, like I said, I struggle with dyslexia and, and a little bit of ADHD. And I, um, that was a little bit of, you know, me finding my norm, which was in the gym, you know, getting better. And I knew that at the time I didn't know how great I could be at academics until I applied myself, until I actually believed in myself and had confidence and courage to step out of all the excuses I was making for myself with dyslexia and all that until, you know, until I actually, you know, got down to it and figured it out and just busted my butt to make it work. And so I had every excuse in the book academically. So I, I try to fill the void with working out as much as I can. And that helped me in a sense, it got me more athletic and turned a lot of heads. But, um, yeah, I got to a point where I figured out I was pretty good at football you know, my, my freshman year. And I wanted to take advantage of it to, to make it to college. Now, your, your mom was uh, obviously an immigrant, just like I am in the US. Um, when you look back now, because obviously, as we talk about the story and, and your mindset when you're accused of this, um, and obviously, there were so many people around you that banded together too, but your specific mindset that got you through that kept your nose clean while you were in prison, while you were serving, you know, the sentence of, of a crime that you didn't commit. Um, it seemed to be you, you, you had this kind of resilience and you were accused at 17 years old. So I mean, we're talking about a very, very young, you know, mind at that point. What was it about your family dynamic 
that foster that kind of mindset, that kindness, compassion, resilience that you seem to have? Um, I would have to say my mother. I mean, I, that the the kindness and the I mean the the compassion and the patience. Um, that I feel like sometimes I surprise myself with in stressful situations um, comes from my mother. Um, you know, if anybody gets to know her or anybody knows her, uh, she's a woman of faith. First and you know, foremost, she's a woman of faith. And I think her faith and the things she's learned with her faith um, has brought her to be that type of human. And having a mother like that, that instilled that into me and her boys um, I believe got me through some of the toughest times in my life and, uh, going into this situation, you know, with the resilience and the perseverance of not just the, the mental aspect of going through such a, a nightmare, but the physical aspect of continuing to look ahead in the future to understand that what's happening to me is not, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, it, it doesn't have to necessarily make me into a, a bitter person. It doesn't necessarily have to make me into, uh, you know, what people expect me to become, which is an angry, bitter person who hates cops and hates judges and hates DAs. That's not who I am at all. Um, I just know that we have a sin nature as human beings. And sometimes, uh, we can be a piece of crap. And there are some people out there that don't necessarily have right intentions, but, you know, it doesn't it doesn't spoil the rest of them. And so um, I chose to understand that what's happening to me is evil and um, I'm going to combat it with good. And so I uh, and here I am today. So we won. Absolutely. Well, one more thing before we kind of start on that journey, then you obviously were very good at football that, you know, you were enjoying sports. Were there any other career aspirations that you were thinking about in, in high school age or was it focused on, on college and maybe professional sports? Um, no, it was up in the air. I mean, um, I mean, at one point I was even thinking about being a firefighter. Um, you know, I was thinking about, uh, being a police officer. Uh, I, I, I the idea of being a SWAT officer, uh, was something that was juggling in my head and and uh, I just wanted to do something that was really cool and fun, you know, and I wanted I was thinking about um, You know being uh, a, Definitely a football player. I wanted to see where that that can't that that went um, And the professional side of course, I mean that's every college football players aspiration is to get to the next level But you no, know, it was just up in the air. I mean, I didn't necessarily know I wanted what I wanted to do yet Beautiful. Well, that would have been a good profession too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, prefacing the story, I had an absolute microdose of what, not so much you, but what your your family went through. My son had a microdose of what you went through, just in the fact that he was in middle school as well, um, at school, basically was... There was some stuff going on. Um, I'm divorced now and in his mother's house. There was kind of tur the turmoil there. He was going through a kind of, you know, low patch, was in a class one day, was kind of crying. The next thing, without con communicating with me at all, he was put in a psych facility for three days. Mm. Saying, like, basically they took his interpretation of being sad into he's going to shoot up the school, which was a complete disregard from any of the protocols the school has. Um, and this was basically a law enforcement officer that made this decision. So this whole project is dedicated to 
kindness, compassion, you know, getting people out of pain, trying to keep people, you know, from, from going down a path that ends up taking their life. You know, it's, it's, that's what this is about. And, and I tell the stories of great police officers, tell the stories of great firefighters, but I also importantly tell the stories of the shitty ones because those are the ones, their one complacency or arrogance or whatever it is leads to people losing their lives, losing their freedom. And even yeah. children, because I witnessed other children cycle through this facility while we were there as well. So, yeah. like I said, an absolute microdose, but knowing just how three days tore me up as a parent, I can't imagine, you know, the pain that your family went through, what Gabriel went through, and obviously what you went through. So, I just want to preface that with this conversation that, you know, this, this is an important conversation for two reasons. One, to highlight the, the impact one, one shitty decision can make on a person, on a person, an entire microcosm of someone. Um, but also this ends up, this ends well, but there are so many people in prison right now that didn't have what we're going to see though, that, that tribe that banded around them that mm. are still in prison. And the innocence project sends me texts every day of all these different people that they're fighting for. So. With you, you're a, you're a successful high school athlete. You're with your middle school sweetheart. You know your aspirations of maybe even one day entering one of my, our professions. Um, your mother is, is fighting a tumor. Your father's had a stroke. So you, uh, they they want they want to keep you at school. So you end up staying with a friend, Jonathan McCarty. And as you mentioned, in that house there was a daycare. So lead me through. The kind of the building up to that, what it was like initially in the house, and then obviously we'll get to the the outcry and then move on from there. Okay, yeah. Um, of course, you know my my parents. My sophomore year, the end of my sophomore year in high school, my parents suffered um, from two medical conditions. My mom developed brain tumors, and my dad had a, a bad stroke, a very severe stroke. And this happened; these both happened within the same month of each other. I had not um, been driving yet. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a license. Um, I was just playing football, going to school. And um, my, my dad was taking me every morning. And uh, we lived out in the country, so I was about maybe 20, 25 minutes away from the school. Um, so, I mean, I had no no way to get to school. And, um, you know, I was obligated to get to school because I was a football player and needed to watch film and needed to work out. Um, before school time, you know, and so I, uh, a buddy of mine, Jonathan McCarty, um, he was like my backup in football. Uh, we were also friends too. I mean, we've been friends since middle school. Um, and his house was an in-home daycare and his mother was very welcoming to the athletes in the Leander area to come in, you know, and hang out, play Xbox and, and eat pizza rolls and, and do that type of thing, you know, and she was just real welcoming. And, and so that's how I knew of her and the house and Jonathan. And so when Jonathan offered, Hey, come stay at my house, uh, until your parents get better. So you can be closer to the school. It's five minutes away. Um, it was something to consider. And so I then, you know, talked to Shama and his mother and she, uh, she welcomed me in and I told my parents and I told my mom and my dad and they agreed to it. And so I started living there. And so while I was living there, of course, I was closer to school and I was able to play football and go to school and do that sort of thing and continue with my football career to go to college. Um, but it was weird because 
when I lived there, I just started seeing another side of Jonathan that I didn't expect, you know, not the side that I knew him of whenever uh, I wasn't living with him. He was actually going down a pretty bad path. Um, a few months in, he started uh, using drugs and he started bringing people to the house that I wasn't comfortable being around with what I wanted to do, wanted to do in my future. And um, he started bringing people to the house that his parents weren't comfortable with. And it was a few months in where Jonathan, you know, I remember this morning where I was getting ready to go to school. And of course, you know, I was being able, to, I was able to use one of the family cars to uh, get to school and go to work. Um, and so, but one of the obligations, the stipulations to that is I had to take Jonathan to school, you know, and, and take him wherever he needed to go if he needed to go somewhere. And I said, cool. So, we were getting ready to go to school and I was getting my backpack and I actually remember walking down the stairs one time and there was a big altercation and uh, Shama, his mother, was yelling at him and she was holding a backpack and in the backpack was a big Ziploc bag of marijuana. And so, you know, he was a 16-year-old kid with about, I mean, half a pound of marijuana. And so... I was like, man, what's going on? He's, 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 he's actually selling it. You know, he's become a drug dealer now. And so that's just not the Jonathan that I knew when I moved in, you know? And I think that was a, a product of the people he started bringing over to the house, which were local drug dealers. And, um, he got in trouble for it. And, and, I, but that was the start. And I say that story because that was the start where I started feeling uncomfortable, um, living in that house. Um, Later, a few weeks later, he got caught with um, Xanax pills. He got caught with Molly. He got caught with just harder drugs. And they got to a point where I just started feeling so uncomfortable, even though I care for Shama and his father, Ralph, very, very nice people. Um, I just didn't want to live in that house anymore. I, I actually my, my mom was on the urge of getting better. She had surgery. Her, her tumors uh, were shrinking. I mean, it was, it was a successful surgery. And so my dad was still going through rehab and uh, he was not getting better. He would have to stay through rehab. And so, but my mom was able to go back home about eight months in to me living in that house. This was now my, that going towards the end of my junior year. Um, and I remember going to my mom and said, mom, I want to come back home. I can't, I don't feel comfortable here anymore. Um, I'm going to college next year. And she, uh, she said, come home, come home. And I go, I come back home and I've been home for about an hour, for about a, a month. And now it's already summertime. And during the summer, the high school holds this summer strength and conditioning camp where all the athletes have a, an opportunity to continue to work out at the high school and do drills, um, over the summer. And I was getting out of that camp around uh, 8 a.m. or actually 10 a.m. And I, was, I had a bunch of phone calls. This was already a month after I moved out of the house. I was living with my parents. I had my own car at the time. And I got out and I checked my phone and I got a bunch of missed calls from my brother Marlon. And I, he says, call me immediately on a text message. So I call him and he immediately says, hey, where are you? If you're coming to Shamas, don't come to Shamas. And I remember telling him, I was like, hey, I, I haven't been there in a month. What's going on? And he says, well, 
there's a, a father of one of the kids here stating that you uh, you sexually abused him. And like, like I always say, I thought my brother was joking with me when he first said that. I couldn't believe him. That's just something you don't you don't you don't expect to hear, you know, or jo- be joked about. I mean, it it was terrible when, when he told me. I was like, man, quit quit joking with me. And but I realized he wasn't joking. Um, things got really serious, and I remember my heart just sinking down to my stomach because this accusation has now just become real. I'm being accused of this. But the thing is, there's a huge question mark on my head because I didn't know what was going on. And I remember telling him, I want to go, I want to come over to the house. I want to get down to the bottom of this. I want to know why I'm being accused of this. And he said, it's not a good idea, man. They're, they're really mad and just go home. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll see what's going on. I'll see why, you know, you're being accused of it and, and why they're saying your name. And, and, uh, Things went on and we figured out that the kid said that Greg uh, did this to him. And I, I, I was stuck in such a hopeless situation because I wanted to figure out why I was being accused of this. And I, I just wasn't getting answers. So for three weeks, I sat there. I couldn't communicate with the accuser. I mean, the accuser is a child and I couldn't commu- communicate with his father, because my brother wasn't allowing me to. And I was also being recommended at that time. By that time, I had an attorney because these accusations um, that were being put on me were actually real. And so I was like, oh, my gosh. I then told my attorney and my attorney said, just, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. And it took three weeks for the victim's parents to finally go to the police and I thought that was actually pretty strange. I, I, I sat is. there. Like, I, thought, I thought that was really strange. And so sitting at my mother's house, my mom's like, I ended up, I remember telling my mom the same day I was getting accused of my mom. And I was, just, I was scared to tell my mom because she was already emotionally unbalanced. And, but I had to tell her and keep her in the loop of what's going on. Um, but for three weeks, man, I, I sat there just completely on the edge didn't know what was going to happen. And, and during that three weeks, I had to continue to go work out and go live normal life while this accusation was being floated around in the, in the air. And I was just trying to get down to the bottom of it. But then I, I go to the police and I remember my attorney telling me that they, they went to the police and my, the police officer and my attorney are communicating with each other. And um, they about, I think about two weeks after they went to the police, about almost about a, a little bit over a month now that I've been accused, um, out of nowhere, out of nowhere. I remember getting a call from my attorney. This was in the middle of summer. And she said that there's a warrant out for your arrest. And I mean, now I just, I, I can't even remember the feelings I, I felt. then. I remember, um, going and sitting in her office and, I just had a bunch of questions for her. I said, why am I being, why am I being arrested for this? What do I do? Are they going to come and handcuff me? Like, what? and, um, she said, you know, this child accused you and that's all they need to arrest you. And I just, that's not right. That's not right. Why, why wasn't there an investigation? Why can't we get down to the truth before you, they go and smear my name, uh, into the whole world? 
without an investigation, without an opportunity to prove that I didn't do it. And she said, that's just how the system works. And that absolutely sickened me, you know, as the person, as, as the victim, you know, in this situation and, and the child's still a victim. But at the same time, when you, when you go and target somebody and you go get the wrong guy, they become a victim. And like you said, there's consequences to that. And the next, you know, three to six years of my life were consequences to that. And I remember my attorney advising me at that moment to go and turn myself in or they would come and handcuff me at practice or at school or at work because I was working at the time. And um, I, I told her, I said, I, don't, I can't do it. I said, I can't, I can't go in there. It, it, does that mean that I'm going to say to the world that I did it because I didn't do it? She said, it doesn't mean that you did it, Greg. It's, it's, it's just showing that you're going to go in there and you know, it's already done. They're going to come. The warrant's already issued. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know the ju- judicial system. I didn't know the justice system, how it worked. Um, and what's crazy and the funny thing is, is that whenever I was looking for an attorney after I was being accused before I went to Patricia Cummings, um, I didn't even know where to get to an, get an attorney. I didn't know where to find them. You know, I didn't live a life where um, I needed an attorney. And so I turned myself in that uh, terrible morning and uh, I spent 16 hours, man, in booking 16 hours just sitting there. And I remember in booking um, about eight hours in, I was sitting on the bench. I was watching TV, waiting for uh, waiting for my family to be able to gather up the money that it would it would take, which was five thousand dollars cash to bond me out. Um, it was a fifty thousand dollar bond. And um, I, I remember sitting in there waiting and waiting and I called my mom like four times and I just told her, get me out of here get me out of here. And about eight hours in, there's already news reports on the TV about, you know, Leander high school, central Texas football star getting arrested of, uh, aggravated sexual assault of a child. And, uh, you know, I just, I was looking at that and I just felt like, and I was a huge laughing stock of the whole County that I was just being, a I couldn't help it, you know. I was in a helpless situation where sitting there and all these lies being made about me and this 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 crap being thrown on my name and and then now I'm I'm expecting like man what's going to happen next with my scholarships and I'm completely scared. I don't know what to expect next. And I was more so worried about that than all the other people around me looking at the same TV screen that I'm looking at. And they're looking at me like, holy crap, you're the guy that's on the TV. Um, and then they put me in a holding cell uh, by myself while the news was, was happening. I mean, they didn't, even, they didn't even change the channel. You know, uh, the police officers didn't even change the channel. And so um, 16 hours later, I got bonded out. And then it was uh, after that, it was a. Uh, led to um man me being expelled out of the school district for one 
my scholarships being stripped from me. I was all over every major news network in Central Texas as being painted a monster. Um, and uh, life seemed like it was over. I felt like I was in a, I felt like I was in Groundhog Day, just reliving a nightmare every morning I woke up. And um, I got to a, I got to a point, man, where I just didn't want to get out of bed anymore. I just, it was, it was the toughest situation because I didn't know how to handle it, you know. And and if it wasn't for, specifically that time, if it wasn't for my now wife, Gabri, um, telling me she believes in me and we're going to fight and all these other people like my family rallying, gathering around me to support me, then I don't, I don't know if I would have been here today talking to you. I mean, honestly, um, it was so tough. And so, but when you thought that it couldn't get any worse, it did, you know, one month later after being released, going to the going to an alternative school. I was in juvie. They, had, they sent me to juvie. They kicked me out of the district. Um, I had to wear a military uniform because I was in a military-based little boot camp thing. And I, one month later, I, go, I remember getting a call from my attorney stating that there's another accusation about me. And dude, I mean, now it felt like this was just a huge, big misunderstanding or something's being made up or somebody's being coached or somebody, somebody's targeting me. There's somebody who really doesn't like me out there because I just couldn't understand it. And I said, well, what's going on now? And uh, they're saying there's a separate kid saying that you did it. And I was like, but I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. And now she's telling me that I got to now turn myself in again. And this was like the day before, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I was going to school and I was actually in school. I had to report to school and I was, you know, telling my family that I needed to, uh, the situation that I'm going through and I actually got arrested in class um, at the alternative school that I was at that came and handcuffed me in class slapped handcuffs on me in front of everybody and um, took me away to the Williamson County Jail for the second time and went through everything that I went through the first time I'm on the news again, 16 hours in booking, um, had to pay more money now to get me out. And, uh, then after that, after I got out, we, I was demanding answers. I was so broken. I told my attorney, I remember telling my attorney, I said, we need to get down to the bottom of this and you need to go to work for me. Like you need to literally figure this out and you need to go prove to them that I didn't do it. And, um, you know, then it, it led to a one year waiting game, um, of nothing, of literally nothing. Like there was no findings. There's no advancement in the case. Like I kept telling, asking my attorney, Patricia Cummings, what's, what's next? What's next? 
you know, that uh, has it has it been resolved yet? Did they if, if they did get assaulted, did they get the right guy or did they figure out that it was all um, being made up lie? What's going on to give me answers? But there was no answers. There's nothing. And. Um, it came to a time where it's about approaching the summer of 2014 and Patricia calls me and saying that I'm getting indicted by a Williamson County grand jury. And what, what it means to be indicted is that you're about to go to trial. You're the, the, the prosecution has persuaded these people to, um, allow them to go to trial and potentially their, their, their goal is to convict you of this crime. And so I, uh, man, I, I, I told Patricia, what's next? What, what are we doing next? Like, I don't want to go to, I don't, I don't need to go to trial. I, they, they need to continue to folk, figure this out. They need to figure this out. Who did it? And, um, of course, no answers. And she ended up telling me we have to go to trial. And it just didn't seem real, man. Like the nightmare got worse. The nightmare got worse. Now I'm actually, actually the reality of me going to prison has now become real. And, um, well, I mean, what can I do? I mean, I already felt like my life was out of my control. Like it honestly did not feel like I was in America. It did not feel like I was in the land, you know, land of, of the free, that I was not an American citizen. I literally felt like I was in a communist country. Like everything was out of my control. And, um, it, dude, I mean, just a nightmare. And we ended up going to trial. Long story short, you know, um, ended up going to trial. The trial lasted like seven days. And before trial, this is a thing a lot of people talk about and ask about because it just shows you what type of circus act that Williamson County tried to pull in this situation. It kind of it shows you what type of justice system we have and we allowed to have, uh, um, you know, here in America that somebody who's being accused of super aggravated sexual assault of a child, so much so that the DA's office is so convinced that he did it, that he's willing to sit him and his family down in a room, send his own attorney into a room with him before they go and, and get a grand jury and offer him a plea deal to five years probation and certain amount of fines, a certain amount of days in jail, a lifetime sex registration to a crime that is 25 to 99 years every day, day for day, no, no parole. The most frowned upon crime in, in humanity. It's worse than murder in some cases. I mean, you last longer as a murderer in prison than you do a child molester. And so at that point, man, sitting there with my attorney, I was so angry that I wanted to go and, and tell them they can go and, and shove that five years up, you know, where. I mean, that's stupid. You know, that's so disrespectful. I mean, 
you're trying to ruin my life. And you say, hey, man, you can get out of it, though. Take this five years. We believe you did it. Now, if you really believe I did it, what kind of justice is that to a victim that you believe was sexually assaulted? Like, I get it. If you're stupid enough to, to go and, and, and if you're evil enough to go ruin my life, then I guess, you know, you don't care enough to go and, and actually seek justice for victims that were actually sexually assaulted. And that's the kind of America that we live in. And now, man, sitting there with my mom um, in that room the day before my trial, before my grand jury, I, uh, I was sitting there and my, my attorney comes in and tells me what the DA wants to do. And of course, um, the crazy thing is that I was so scared. I was so scared to go to trial that in a county that was targeting me, one, in a, not only in a county that has a historical history of wrongfully convicting people, um, like the Michael Morton case and, and a few other cases, and 98% conviction rate. I mean, they're, they're, they're sending people to prison for marijuana charges in Williamson County. And so I remember looking at my mom, and the crazy thing is that I was actually thinking about it. I was thinking about it. I was thinking about looking at my broken mother crying, you know, completely afraid, telling me, you know, I'm, af I'm afraid that they're going to take you away, Greg. I'm afraid. And seeing her looking at me almost makes you want to do it, you know? Take the plea deal, um, you mean? Yeah, almost makes you want to take the plea deal. And... um. I remember calling Gabri. Uh, she's in LA at the time. Oh, not in LA. Um, she was actually doing something that re didn't require her going there, but being there. But, um, and she, out of nowhere, man, just became a fighter, more of a fighter than I was at the time. She, uh, she kind of kicked my butt into gear and she said, We're going to continue to fight for this. I know what you're feeling right now, but you're going to be free. Like this is going to get cleared up. Now she believed more than I did at the time because, you know, she's such a strong person, but, um, I end up saying, no, I end up saying I'm going to trial and I'm fighting for my life. And I go to trial one week of just tough trial, man. Felt like a lot, a lot of the time it was going good. Um, the reason why I was going good is because there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing to tie me to this case. It was, it was like a, it was what it was. It was a one week of just trying to paint a picture of, you know, every attempt to prove Greg didn't do this, but you didn't have the evidence. It was really just a big debate and persuasive game. A lot of hypothetical situations, you know, this and that. And at the end of it, man, we we sat there and it was, it was about the sixth day of the trial and the jury went off. And, oh, to kind of, 
you know, so much stuff has happened. It's hard for me to think back on. No, take your time, man. But during the trial, one of the key things that um, that really, um, really just stood out to a lot of people was, you know, I was saying earlier that I was accused of one kid, and then a month later, I was accused of another because another kid apparently gave an outcry. You know, another kid actually apparently came forward and told his parents that I sexually assaulted him, but that wasn't the case. Actually, the kid never came forward and told his parents that I sexually assaulted him. What it was, what happened was, is that we found out in trial that the detective, um, after I was accused of the first kid and, and arrested, that same detective, um, brought it upon himself to go and call specific people in the daycare, specific parents, and tell them immediately that, you know, this guy has been sexually assaulting kids in a daycare and we want to make sure that your kid was not sexually assaulted. And he then brings this kid, this kid made no outcry to his parents, then brings this kid to the Children's Advocacy Center, which is a center, of course, where kids sit down and um, get interviewed by trained professionals to give outcries, forensic interviews, to give outcries and accounts for anything that has been done to them um, sexually, you know, physically, emotionally. Um, and the interviewers interviewing that second kid, right? And <clears throat> The kid's saying nothing. You know, the kid is just acting normal, not giving an outcry, not saying anything happened to him. Um, and then the the detective in trial, um, we showed this, but the detective walks in, you know, with a gun on his hip. He's not even in a uniform and tells the, the forensic interviewer to get out of the room. He's going to take it from here. And he starts interviewing and I say interviewing lightly he starts interrogating this kid um asking him leading questions and telling him you're going to tell me what your mother said you're gonna, so so you know so I heard you know what did, what did Greg make you do you know did Greg make you put lotion on his penis yes or no and this is a child that has no concept of being abused at all and now a police officer is introducing all these sexual images to a perfectly innocent child correct and sitting there the kid is saying no you know that's that's the crazy part is the kid is actually understanding what the police officer is saying and the kid is saying no 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 and finally you know basic psychology would I mean, you can see it if you have your own child, but if, you know, a kid says no multiple times and it's not what you want to hear, he's noticing it's not what you want to hear. He's going to eventually say the opposite, which is yes, to please you, to get out of a stressful, uh, uncomfortable situation. And that's what happened in this video was the kid said, OK, no is not the correct answer. I should probably say yes. And said yes. And it was a wrap. You know, the, the police officer said, all right, we're done here. And then 
this is the crazy, this is another crazy part that we found out post-trial in innocence hearing. We'll get to later on, but he um, he then gathered that information, that second outcry, and goes to a judge <clears throat> that same day, goes to a judge. At the time, she was an assistant district attorney, but uh, she's now a judge, but goes to her and, re- and asks for advice if this is enough to get a second arrest warrant for Greg Kelly. And she saw it and she said she advises him not to do it. This is incorrect. This is not good policing. This is not good investigation. This is not, um, this is not right. And he ends up doing it anyways. So now going to the trial back in, um, July of 2014, the, the second kid in trial um, gets on stand and, and all of the all of the, the kids that both of the kids um, interviews and testimonies were done by closed circuit television uh, in a whole another courtroom. Um, and, you know, we, we thought that was strange because that actually did not provide a situation where the kids could actually properly identify me as the person who did this to him. And that we come to realize is a key component in actually finding the right guy because that issue actually was brought up later on um, and became one of the, the, the key staples to what went wrong in this case. <laughs> everything went wrong in this case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything went wrong, but identification, out of all cases, this is probably one of the biggest ones um, because during description – of the assailant is one thing. The description of the assailant is one thing, but one thing that the police officer did not do in this whole situation from initial outcry of the first child to trial, one thing he didn't do. And if you watch enough law and order and CSI, you can even realize, figure out that what you do whenever a kid seems confused is you put pictures in front of him, and you point and you say, hey, who did this to you? Who is Greg? Show me Greg. Who is Greg? Exactly. Never did that. Because I could call myself Greg and go and rob a bank and say, oh, Greg did it. Yeah. And who is Greg? And so that never happened. Um, they automatically assumed Greg was me when um, the description of Greg didn't fit me at all. The, the place that the kid was saying that this happened was not my room, was not the description of my room. It was Jonathan's room. Yeah, and, just, um, and just for people, just to put this in right now, so for people listening that haven't seen Outcry, and as you mentioned, it's a very important thing, all the interviews are video. They're all there. So this is not like third-hand information. You as a viewer get to see each of these interrogations, each of these interviews, each of these outcries. But Jonathan McCarty and you at that time looked almost identical. Yeah. Yeah. So to touch on that, um, Jonathan and I, I mean, we were, we were really good friends and he, he was younger than me. He was one year younger than me, but a lot of people always thought that he was my little brother. I mean, everybody was like, Oh, is that your little brother? Man, y'all look alike, you know? And I, I mean, being his, his really good friend, I mean, it was pretty cool being kind of like his older brother, you know? And I, I, I'm, I'm the youngest. I didn't have a younger brother. So it was cool having that, you know? But, uh, yeah, I mean, now that 
you know, it inspired it, it, you know, trans transcended into this. It was like, man, that's, that's crazy that I look back on it. And a lot of people thought we were brothers cause we look so lo- so much alike. And, you know, I didn't think much of it until, you know, I was accused and the description of what the first child is saying is matching Jonathan when he was wearing his room, um, and his, his vocabulary, you know, kid, you, uh, you know, Jonathan used a certain word that the kid said that the assailant said, which was boss. And Jonathan would tell the kids that, you know, he was the boss in the house. And so kind of, kind of ending my trial, um, the second kid actually gets on stand and, Everything that he was forced to say in the interview at the uh, Children's Advocacy Center, he actually recanted on stand and said nothing happened to him. Which I thought was was incredible as well. I mean, firstly, you know, the kid was swayed, but secondly, that child and obviously that family, um, you know, because at one point the parents must have been like, oh, maybe my kid was you know, molested, but for that family unit to be like, no, this didn't happen. You know, we trust our child and we're not going to stand up there and falsely accuse someone of something that, as you said, was basically solicited. Yeah, no, I think, I think it was, uh, it was very insightful for a lot of people. I mean, it, it provided, you know, if I felt any, any type of little type of justice and, the uh, the process I was going through in trial was I was so happy that the truth was coming out, you know, with the, the second kid recanting and um, I gave me a little bit of sigh of relief. But there were, but the first kid, he was so brainwashed and so coaching that I did this to him by because you got to know that for a whole year leading up to a trial when the police officer should have been doing an investigation record has actually proved that this kid was going through going to a therapist every other day reliving what happened to him by a therapist a therapist asking him hey how's it going how how are you taking you know that stuff that happened with greg and and this, this is kind of putting that in his head every day up until the trial and that's a brainwashing technique that's a that's a technique to make up something I'm not saying that this this accusation was made made up, but it's a technique to put something into this kid kid's head and make it stick because you know that this kid is at an age where, I mean, imagination is everything to him. And and uh, multiple psychologists, um, you know, it's a learning point for um, forensic psychology and you know, child psychology that. If you're going to be a forensic interviewer, if you're going to be involved with um, child psychology, it is probably the most important psychology because you have you have the ability to either um, inspire a kid or completely ruin his life from here on out. Well, they had that one um, moment where they talked about when the studies like as in the 70s or 80s and they videoed a physician doing a pediatric wellness check basically. And then they did a lot of that suggestive interviewing 
So they asked the first time, you know, what happened? Did they touch you anywhere? No, no, no. They just measured my arm, took my blood pressure, listened to my heart. And then they did some suggestive interviewing. The kid went away, came back, did interviewing again. And this time the story was completely warped. The Dutch, you know, the doctor touched my pee pee and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was fascinating, you know. So, and then, they, and then you look at some of the cases that they feature. You mentioned, um, uh, where are we? Michael Morton, you know, and, and being accused of murdering his wife. And then there's that one famous daycare, um, that was accused of satanic rituals. And that's it ended up being the same thing. So as, yeah. as myself, you know, being very, very, um, uneducated in that world, it was, it was horrific to watch how a, an adult can manipulate the mind of a child and basically orchestrate a completely false, um, reality in that poor child's mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think it was very insightful to a lot of people. Um, and I was even in belief of this before this happened to me, but, um, you know, a lot of people, if you know, I'm, I'm not, um, naive to the, the, the comments and the Facebook posts and the social media of me being painted as a monster during this whole process. I mean, I, I saw it, you know, I saw I mean, I couldn't escape it, but a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that people said, that I saw that was repeating itself was four-year-olds don't lie. Four-year-olds can't lie. He's not just going to make this up. Greg did it. And I said, well, hold on a second. If you knew what I just learned, then you would understand that a child is susceptible to being coached. A child is susceptible to believing these false realities. And it can he can be brainwashed to believe situations that didn't really play out the way it did. And that's exactly what happened here. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of studies that, um, like I said, if you, you know, you're fascinated by it and it was very insightful to me because it gave me hope to, to, to continue to fight too. Well, just before we kind of move on, one thing I think that gets lost when they're like, you know, like you said, believe the child, believe the child is, I think, you know, everyone would agree that we believe that that poor child was abused. It seems like. Yeah. But while you accuse and, and chase the wrong person, the person who did it is out there to continue their predatory race. So mm -hmm. if you get so focused on, oh, no, 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 yeah, the, the child's completely right, then you're completely ignoring the fact that if you are wrong, which has happened in so many cases, and even like I said, the Michael Morton, where they found some guy that had killed other people too, that other person is free to kill, to rape, to abuse, to, to whatever it is. So that is a huge, huge, I think, you know, takeaway from this is that if you right. get too myopic in your investigation, you completely negate the possibility of a repeat. And obviously we'll get to that where that was exactly the case here too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that's the thing that's, that's tunnel vision, hundred percent. You know, when you, when you get tunnel vision and you want to fully focus and target one person that you have come to believe, I don't know if he believed I did it or not. I don't, I don't know to this day if he believes I did it or not, but I know one thing is that he completely targeted me to be the person and only person through his actions and his investigation to not in, interview, investigate, or look for somebody else that was, con that was constantly and actually lived in that house at the time. I don't know if he knew that I moved out a month prior to me, to this accusation coming about. I didn't know if he knew that or not because, well, and and what makes me believe that is be, we found out that he never actually went to the the detective, Chris Daly, the Cedar Park Police Department, never actually went to the house 
to do an investigation, didn't take pictures, didn't interview anybody living in that house, didn't do the basic necessities that it takes to be a law enforcement officer, to be a detective. Like I said, I, I don't know anything. I didn't I didn't get a degree in, in criminal justice, but I know enough to go to the freaking crime scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a very important thing to stay on just for a moment. So it was because um, Jonathan had brothers as well, didn't he? They had also been in trouble with the law. And I'm not saying any of them were responsible in any way, shape or form. Um, was his dad living in the house too? He was, yeah. Okay. So you've got multiple males, even if you've got the age description, whatever. You've got multiple males. It seemed like, you know, it was a firm he that did this and they didn't visit the residence. He didn't uh, interview any of these other people. So, I mean, I'm a firefighter. I have no idea about the world of law enforcement other than the few kind of interactions that I have. But I think everyone can agree that the, you know, policing 101 is that you eliminate suspects by interviewing, by, you know, taking photos and, and descriptions. And, you know, if it was done next to a tree, then it probably wasn't in the house. You know what I mean? So you, you, you figure out the location too. The fact that they took this poor little boy's word for the name Greg without identifying faces, without eliminating other people in the house is and I think people, you know, all the way up through the judicial ladder said the same thing. One of the worst example of policing they'd ever seen. Absolutely. And you know, and you know the crazy part is that the 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 accusation was that Greg did this to me. It wasn't Greg Kelly. It wasn't Greg who's six foot one, tan skin, football player, that wears this clothes. No, it was Greg that did this to me. And he was wearing this, which was SpongeBob pajama pants. It was in this place, this room with the trophies, right? And the descriptions of Greg actually matched Jonathan. So, like I said, Detective 101, if I, I didn't need to go to college to be a detective, but if the description is not matching the name, then I'm going to now look at all, like you said, all the possible suspects in the house to find who Greg is to this child. And so, and, and touch on a little bit of what you said earlier about, man, like the repercussions and the consequences that happen from n to not going and getting the right guy. I mean, if you watch Outcry, other people got raped, drugged and raped by this guy. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect storm. You know, when you don't seek justice the first time, not only do you ruin somebody's life, but <clears throat> more people's life gets ruined. And it's all at the cost of getting that notch on your belt <clears throat> and sustaining the conviction rate of a 98% conviction rate in Williamson County. Yeah. That's why. Well, you had the, the second outcry was was um, revoked. So I'm assuming then you got off scot-free and then you went on to live happily ever after. <clears throat> not at all man. <laughs> not at all uh, i wish man um actually you know what i don't know man because you know looking back at it as crazy as it sounds um if you just think about it, just imagine it for a second i went to trial seven days fought like hell but would i be innocent you know what i mean or would i be classified as oj simpson that's something that I uh, I think of every day is that I got accused of all this, but the DA and the police officers, man, painted 
painted me to be a complete monster and persuade the court of public opinion to put in doubt. You know what I mean? To completely put this big ass crap mark on my name. And if I, you know, if I went to trial and got proven not guilty, you still got to also, you know, take in the fact that, um, I wouldn't have been innocent. And I guess you could say, I say those in, I put that in quotations because in today's law and American law is that when you go to trial and you get not guilty, it's not the same thing as being innocent. I mean, I would have, I would have went off to college and who knows? I mean, every, you know, I would have been in, I would have ran into somebody that said, you know what? You're that guy that may or may not have done it, you know? But now, I can declare to the world that I am actually innocent and I had nine judges tell me that I was actually innocent. I fought like hell and proved that I didn't do this. And I, I've been exonerated. I've exonerated myself from these charges. My record has been cleared. And so looking back at it, I mean, it's, it's crazy to say, do I, do I wish that I, 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 uh, I, was, I was, you know, deemed not guilty at trial. I mean, I can't answer that, dude. I mean, I don't know what my life would have been if I walked away from that courtroom that day. Um, it's a tough, tough, tough paradigm and a tough thing to think about. And so, um, I'm, I'm completely blessed now. I mean, I have a wonderful life, wonderful wife. Um, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, uh, but I'm so excited about it, um, that I can't hold it in. But, uh, I, uh, no, man. I mean, I got convicted in uh, July, 2007, or 2014 of a super aggravated sexual assault of a child. And, um, now, now what happened after the trial going into the, um, going into the sentencing phase is something that a lot of people need to know because it, again, um, paints an image of our judicial system and how it works. Um, a lot of people don't know this because, you know, it's not it's not sexy for Hollywood to uh, to uh, to put this into uh, law and order or CSI. But when you go into a sentencing phase after you're you're uh, deemed guilty, I mean, your hand tied behind your back, you're handcuffed. You know, I mean, you're going to prison no matter what. Something's happening. You're getting sentenced to something. I just got wrongfully convicted and I had to spend a night in jail on the very next day. I get put into a room with my family before the sentencing phase. I have to walk right back out to everybody who just witnessed me getting convicted and sit there and figure out the fate of the rest of my life. And I'm sitting in that room, this little separate room with my family before I get pulled out to the sentencing hearing and my attorney walks in and um, she tells me that the judge, before we go out there, I want to tell you something. But the judge and the DA has come to an agreement that if you accept the, the minimum of 25 years without parole, then and you have to waive your right to appeal this trial. That's the catch. You got to waive your right to appeal this trial then you will get the minimum of 25 years, you know? And then she specifically, this is how she said it, word for word, I'll never forget this. She told me, 
Or, Greg, you can go out to the same jury that convicted you and get anywhere between 25 to 99. Now, talk about a play on words, dude. Talk about a play on words. I mean, get put in that situation and, and be told that. You know what I mean? Same jury that just convicted you. And they can give you any number between 25 to 99 without parole. I mean, just, this just jury. And this, this is the prosecutor. I'm, I'm sorry, I mean, just to say, so, so this is your lawyer who also hadn't asked why no one had mentioned the fact that you guys looked together, who also hadn't asked why it wasn't the house investigated. I mean, all, all these areas. So can I, you know, after the fact, we realized that, you know, she, as a as a defense lawyer had had dropped the ball in so many areas as well and again appeared to just want to close this case and move on with her life yeah it got to that point for her um after fifty thousand dollars that we paid her you know sold my house i mean my mom sold the house that i grew up in to pay for her 20 something years of memories you know gone to fight for my life and pay this for this woman to fight for my life gone. And she just wants to close it up and move on. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, man. Um, she, she told me that. And I, again, caught in a situation, caught in this decision that I don't want to make anymore. You know, I specifically remember telling my family that I don't want to make decisions anymore. You, you decide for me. Because apparently I'm not making the right ones anymore. You know, like, crap, I'm at this situation where I just feel like I'm, everything's out of my control. And I'm scared to make the next decision. And I tell my brother, I said, man, choose for me. I said, you know, get out at 44 years old or spend the rest of my life and die in prison. And... um. After, and, and the crazy part is Patricia nonchalantly said, we don't have much time to decide this. Yeah, yeah like five minutes. Five Cause, minutes. Because she's got to get to Starbucks. Yeah, five minutes, man. <laughs> and uh, and uh, man, we ended up deciding that I would, I would uh, for the sake of me getting out and seeing my family again and, and, and tasting freedom in this lifetime, um, I would get out at 44. For a crime you didn't commit. For a crime I didn't commit. Talk about just living a nightmare. I mean, just imagine being in a nightmare like that, man. And you can't wake up. You can't wake up. It's it's real. And so um, I uh, I go out there and, and I get I get sentenced to 25 years. I got to sign a paper. And I waved to my family goodbye and I just, I blow a kiss because I, I thank them so much. <laughs> Sorry, man, I'm getting emotional. Ugh. I just thank them so much. Man, I probably just told this story a thousand times. <laughs> it's, uh, but I thank them so much. Um, I get sent off to prison for, uh, for, for uh, 25 years. Yeah. Well, don't apologize for getting emotional, man. I, I can't, I mean, I, I say I can't imagine. Like I told you, I had that microcosm of my 12 year old child being locked away in a room where they took his shoelaces and completely at the, you know, the, 
the, the completely the cause of horrendous policing. So I have that minute kind of version of it. What I really want to ask, and it wasn't something that you know was really expanded on in in the the documentary, is anyone who kind of knows street level the worst thing you could possibly be in prison is probably a law enforcement officer and or uh, a pedophile, accused pedophile. So you're there now, you go into prison, innocent of your crime, but you're not going there as an armed robber or someone who beat up a cop or anything that might be admired in prison. You're going in as as a a sex offender. So... What what was that like? I don't mean like oh that must have been really hard. I mean like you know seriously how how hard was it to to a stay alive and b not then create a situation where you're accused of something that actually would be a crime and now complicates the whole issue. Yeah, man. Um, you know, going into prison, like I said, I, I said this before um, in different interviews, but. Dude, it's going into prison as a child molester. You don't last years. It's the life expectancy is not years. You know, it's days. They don't. They don't want you there. You're the scum of the earth. You don't. You don't deserve to take another breath. And I think all of us who care about children and love children and and maybe have a child, deep down on some level, we agree, right? And but being um, painted as that, man, when you're not and you just want to go play football and have a girlfriend and go to college and just go live a normal life, being painted that, going into an environment which is a world inside of a world, prison is not what we think it is. You know what I mean? On some halfway level, it's what you see on movies, but prison in itself is a tricky place man to be as a child molester because every day you gotta you gotta watch your back you gotta see what you do and you gotta see where you go and you gotta see what you say and how you conduct yourself will determine ultimately your fate in prison and what i mean by that is i i had to become the most adhere it to my, my surroundings as possible to make it through that place. Um, I had to, I had to figure out who not to become friends with, who not to become, who not to talk to, um, where to go, what to do. And, you know, did I, did I, did I run into challenges? I did, you know, did I have to defend myself? I did. Um, am I absolutely blessed not to be killed? And, uh, and stabbed and scarred, you know, and maimed for life. I'm blessed that I, I, because I've witnessed so much of that, you know, in there. I've witnessed people's life being taken from them because of what they've done. And that could have been me, you know, but for some reason, man, there was a hedge of protection over me where that didn't happen to me. You know, and that's where that's where my faith comes in. You know, that's where I believe that there was a higher power looking over me, man. And, you know, I I, I mean, how do you equip an 18 year old man to, to, to go into that environment? You know, how do you how do you do that? And 
um, I, I am absolutely blessed and lucky that I was able to get through that because 99% of people don't. If that's either being killed, um, committing suicide, a lot of that too, or finally getting released, but you're really not free. You know what I mean? Like that place has messed you up so much emotionally, um, mentally, where you're now back in freedom, but you know, it's just, you're, you're too scarred. And, um, for three years I had to, you know, fight the mental warfare that was going on in my head, the physical warfare, the spiritual warfare. And each and every day I had to get out, get up out of bed. And this is where the next thing I'm going to say is something that I had to do each and every day, I had to make the choice to keep living. You know what I mean? Because I could have easily just started existing. I could have easily just started going through the motions and just, you know what I mean, existed until my demise, until I died, you know? But I chose every day to continue to better myself and put myself into situations where I could be the most successful in the circumstances that I was going through. I put myself through college in prison. I put myself on a unit that gave you the opportunities to go to college. I put myself on a unit where I could work and learn trades, which the trades I learned in prison, I created a business with out in the world. You know what I mean? I put myself through those and I made a decision to continue to live life, you know, and not give up. And I had a support group I had a family, I had perfect strangers write me every day, reminding me of who I am, where, what's going to happen, and that I'm eventually going to be free. And um, that's, what, that's what drove me, man. I mean, that's what kept me alive. Um, the love of my wife kept me alive. It kept my heart beating, you know what I mean? I could have, my heart could have died, man. I could have became a person um, that a totally different person that I came in. You know, that place has so much hate that it could have, it could have made you into a person that you don't want to be around anymore. A person that makes a bunch of excuses, a, a person that is racist. I mean, there's so much racism in prison. I mean, color is everything in prison. And when you live in a world where color is everything, there's going to be a lot of dysfunction. And that's how it is in there. Your color determines your respect. And I thank God that I separated myself from that dogma. Um, and I continue to fill myself up with things that are going to make me successful. And, um, you know, going into the prison system, at 18 years old, I, uh, man, I, I just, just think back on it, man. It just, I, there's a lot of situations where I, I will remember for the rest of my life that have shaped me into the person that I am today. Faith wise, strength wise, appreciating freedom, um, going without for so long that now that I have it, it's just like, man, dude, it's awesome to have it. You know, hopping in my truck and going to a park and walking my dog. Those are things that you daydream about in prison. You know what I mean? Being able to 
have dinner with my mom and sit down at a table and have dinner with my family. Those are things that you daydream about in prison. And those are situations that I will never take for granted for the rest of my life. And so that, uh, that's, that's where I'm at on it, man. I mean, for three years, three years, it, uh, it, it was a nightmare. And, um, yeah, man, a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting. I mean, if you watch the documentary, there was a lot of stuff that uh, we had to jump and hurdles we had to jump and overcome. Yeah, man. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that perspective because I mean, it must have been must have been horrendous. And I've had you know people from corrections facilities in the U.S. I've had people from Norway, and I'm always kind of curious on. You know, how we can do every element of life better, not throwing shit at the way people do it now, but it's like, you know, there, there are, there are places all over the planet that do things really well. Norway's prisons are actually excellent for rehabilitation and their, um, reoffender rate is extremely low. Um, and you hear about the predatory, you know, the, the, the racial element, the, the drugs within the prison, you know, the fact that you're locked in a box, which is not exactly, good for the human spirit and i think last year this planet has had a little taste of of you know an a, a, an insight into what it must be like in prison and they all hated it so there we go clearly it's not a very rehabilitative you know experience um one thing you were talking to kate and i want to say thank you to kate casey for connecting us as well i listened to your interview with her um you had the gentleman jake bryden kind of pop up out of nowhere and be one of the voices to petition for your innocence. Now, what was interesting to me is that when Kay asked how Jake came into your life, it involved Cabri's father. So I think that's a very important story to tell, that how you can be a mentor figure and a respected member of society, not from from affluence or political you know, stature, but as a human being to the point where that can invoke trust on other people. So kind of tell me about that story if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Um, so Jake Bryden, I had no idea who he was. You know, Jake became a very um, influential and essential voice in my story for fighting for my life. Um, he came up out of nowhere, like three, three days after I was convicted, you know, right after I was convicted, um, he was just a normal guy who owned, who owned a business, uh, here in, in, uh, central Texas area. And, uh, he was just at home, man, just watching the news. And he had heard about the Greg Kelly case and the things that were going on in it and how it was transpiring and stuff like that. So he, uh, he saw like that dreadful day of me being convicted and it was all over, it was blasted all over the news but when I was being convicted, he also saw his old leadership coach um, on the news standing next to Greg Kelly supporting him, you know. And Jake was so influenced by David Anderson, who is now my father-in-law. But he was so influenced by him and so impacted by him growing up through high school that Dave is the type of guy that will imprint on people and, uh, and people will remember him for the rest of, his, for the rest of their life. And so, um, Jake immediately like, you know, called David and said, Hey, um, what's going on with this Greg Kelly thing? I saw that, you know, you're, you're supporting him and, and, you know, he's dating your daughter. And, uh, you know, I can't remember word for word the conversation that they had, but it, it was something along the line as, 
um, David, you know, does support, does support me and he believes in me and he told Jake that Greg didn't do it and he's, he's being targeted and, and there was a big mishandling of justice that happened here, Jake. And, you know, and Jake then was put in a situation where it was like, okay, this guy that I respect so much is standing up for this guy who's being painted as a monster. Something just doesn't seem right. You know, why would somebody do that? And so um, Jake went in and did his own investigation and did his own searching and researching and um, ended up calling, you know, David back and was like, hey, I'm going to fight for Greg, too. You know, something's in my soul that needs to fight for Greg. Just learning about the case and what Greg went through, I got to fight for him, too. And Jake then calls my mom, my broken mother. You know, I mean, just witnessed her son get torn away from her. I was crying, dude, out on at home. And Jake calls my mom. And actually, Jake doesn't call my mom. She calls my brother. Doug, he calls my brother Doug. And Doug runs into my mom's room and said, hey, mom, this guy named Jake Bryden's on the phone. He wants to help Greg. Like, he wants to help Greg. And, uh... <sighs> We, my mom just couldn't believe it because that whole, for three days straight, she was fasting and praying for a miracle, you know, for an angel to come and, and save my life. And, um, that answered her prayer, man. I mean, you know, Jake then that same day or the next day goes to Radio Shack, grabs a megaphone, pulls down his tailgate in the middle of the high school parking lot and get, gets a rally going. <laughs> You know, gets a rally going and starts just going at it, man. I mean, Jake, you know, we got we gave him a nickname called the Mouth of the South because his his voice. I mean, the way he talks, I mean, he should be a public speaker. I mean, dude's phenomenal. But um, he got up and did, I believe, what no man would ever do for another man, which is um, stand up and fight for him when all the odds are against him. And you know, he didn't know me. He had no he had no obligation to do that. And but he did. And that then developed into continuing to fight. For three years, Jake took the social media. He held rallies. You know, he fought like hell for me. And um now to this day, you know, you know, Back in January of 2019, um, or January 2020, Jake ended up marrying me and Gabri. You know, officiating yeah. the marriage, not marrying both of you. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah he wasn't a weird three-way marriage. <laughs> yeah, no, no three-way marriage, but officiated the marriage, and, and uh, you know, because I, it felt fitting, you know, and so, yeah, man, it Jake. Uh, we like to believe sometimes, you know, Jake is an angel that came out of nowhere, man. But um, when he's like, when I said an outcry, when he starts opening up his mouth and to save my life, you can clearly he's not clearly he's not an angel. <laughs> so that's what starts unfolding is you have all all these just terrible professionals, 
So whether it's you know the investigating officer, whether it's the sheriff, whether it's your defense attorney, um, you know even some of the, the DA as well, I think um, at the time. So there's all these these you know figures of people that just have no ownership of their profession, but then don't have the courage and humility to say, you know what, we screwed up. Now we're going to take the time to review this case, undo the damage. It was just stand by your screw up. And, you know, my, my career and my ego is more important than this guy we just sent into prison for 25 years that may get stabbed in two days and, you know, never walk out again. But then, as I said, you have these amazing figures, you know, coming in. Obviously, Gabriel and her family stood by you and you had Jake. But then another guy who I would actually love to get on the show as well was uh, Keith Hampton. So yeah. tell me about, about again, how you found him. And then, and then let's talk about the end of that, that initial three year physically being in prison. Yeah. So Keith actually, um, after I was convicted, Keith was immediately recommended to me by, uh, by Patricia Cummings, you know, the same attorney that was conflicted and ineffective. She, she requested her good friend, Keith to represent me as my appeal attorney. And um, the process of me appealing my trial is completely waived. That was part of that 25 years, right? And so um, there was no hope to appeal what happened in the trial. So the only hope that we had was to find new evidence that would prove that I was innocent. And in some sense, it was really, it was, it was a lo- long waiting game, but we really didn't have to reach far for new evidence because these stones we turned over were right in front of us the whole time that the police department never wanted to turn over. I mean, simple things, man, as get my freaking phone and figure out where I was the day that the, you know, crime happened. I was 50 miles away. And so Keith got introduced through Patricia and it was about three years of waiting. It was more so waiting for a court date. It was waiting to actually get in front of judges to fight and prove that I didn't do this, to show the evidence. And uh, it was being, it was hard to do because we had to jump over the, the hurdle of the current DA's office. You know what I mean? While during that three-year process of fighting after I was convicted, about two years of that, the same DA's office that convicted me was still in office and that would not want to see the new evidence that my attorney um, found that would prove that I didn't do this. That would prove that because, they were wrong because, again, they don't want to be proven wrong. wrong. Because, yeah, because they, they, know they, they know they didn't do the investigation. They know that there's evidence out there that, prove that, that proves that I didn't do it. So, of course, they're going to shut down any attempt by my attorney to be proven wrong. So... I remember my attorney telling me and Jake telling me too that um, just literally just two months after I was convicted, Keith Hampton wanted to march into judge or uh, not judge uh, uh, DA uh, Jana Duty's office and say, hey, I got enough evidence to prove to you that Greg didn't do this. Just two months. And she uh, just kind of, I don't know, maybe she was having a good day. She said, I'll have a meeting with you. And Keith couldn't even get to slide six on his PowerPoint before Janet Duty says, get out of my office. You know what I mean? Shuts it down and says, 
I don't care if you show me a video of somebody else doing it. Greg's not getting out of prison unless there was somebody else living in that house that looks like Greg. And then, and you know, Keith was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and he's like, keep digging. And his name was, you know, Gregory Raymond Kelly. Then we have nothing to talk about here. You know? Mm-hmm. And Keith was like, okay, we, I know what's happening here. I know, I know the game you're playing. And so, uh, Keith then tells Jake, okay, we got to do this the hard way. And, uh, we, we ended up having to go through the courts and we had to wait, man. We had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And when there was a perfectly capable DA's office to, you know, right or wrong. And, um, in the process in about two years, um, and that's the crazy thing about people that are crazy and, um, people that, and it's sad. I mean, it's sad. I mean, you know, people that are crazy and people that do bad things in this life, um, they have to live with the decisions that they make. You know what I mean? And they have to, they have so many skeletons in their closet that two years later, while I was waiting in the court system to get a date, um, first of all, a new DA comes into town because Sean Dick wins the reelection. Before that, Judge Dan- Donna, uh, not, I mean, Jana Duty um, ends up um, like getting charged with contempt of court and like a previous murder trial and this and that. And she's pretty much just making a fool of herself and, and ending her career, you know, uh, showing herself to be unfit. And she ends up getting disbarred and has to do like two days in jail or something for her, her content in court. And then the, uh, the DA's office position, the Wimsey County DA's office is completely vacant for somebody to, to take after reelection. And Sean Dick, a district attorney out of, you know, Austin, Travis County ends up winning the, the, the reelection. And, um, the second day, man, of his while he was in office, he allowed Keith to come in and uh, show what he has to prove that I'm innocent. And this was after you know we lost in the um, in the first circuit court. You know, in my case, judge didn't want to see it. Judge didn't want to hear it. You know, and we were kind of losing hope. And and uh, out of nowhere, man, Sean Dick wanted to have a meeting with Keith Hampton and listen to what he has. This is the new DA of Williamson County. And he seems like another, another good figure that comes in and he wasn't from, you know, obviously from the footage that we saw, it wasn't like, Hey, I'm Sean. I'm totally pro Kelly, pro Greg. And we're going to get him out. He was very middle of the road, but he said, if there's a chance that this guy might be wrongfully convicted, why wouldn't I review the case? And that's all anyone wants. It's just a fair shot at a review. And that's what you asked for the three year or two years prior. And you were just told to, to go away, which is just disgusting. So he seemed to me as, you know, again, a viewer to be a very middle of the road, fair man who is probably very, very good in the position that he sits in now. Absolutely. You know, he's the type of guy that every county should have as a DA was a guy who is simply just seeking the truth. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no reputation to, to withhold 
right? I mean, there is no promotion. Like, he's trying to be a judge. I mean, who knows? Maybe he does, but I know he's trying to earn it the right way with what he did. That's the kind he of judge that you want, though. A fair one. Judge that you want, man. You want a fair judge that just seeks the truth, just getting down to the truth. And so going, going into it, man, Sean Dick sits down with my attorney and just a few hours ends up getting out of the, the meeting and calls the Texas Rangers to get involved and reopen Greg Kelly's case, you know? And I, uh, I remember getting visited by a Texas Ranger in, uh, in jail, in prison. And, uh, and then a few short months later, I was bench warranted back to Williamson County. And, uh, this was the action that we have been praying and fighting for was to get back to Williamson County, get an innocence of evidence hearing to prove the, all the evidence and show all the evidence in a hearing that we gathered post trial and to get me home. And I, uh, I was bench warranted back in, uh, June of 2017 and waited until like August of 2017 to have my hearing. And, uh, we, it was August 2nd, the hearing started and it was a three day hearing and it was just a, a bunch of, you know, evidence being brought forward, um, proving that I was nowhere near the crime scene when it happened, uh, through my phone, um, proving, you know, it was a lot of things that were collected on Jonathan's laptop to, you know, that, that showed a lot of, uh, um, images that would be classified as child pornography. Um, the fact that you weren't in the house the, the day that the accusation was made, things like that. I was not in the house when the accusation was made. Jonathan was in the house when the accusation was made. Uh, child pornography on his his cell phone. Um, rumor or rumors of him, you know, wearing the the uh, the, the the clothes. You know what I mean? Like, I guess you could say. Uh, testimonies and eyewitness accounts of him wearing the clothes that the that the victim said the assailant wore while he was abused um and then also what what's really really messed up is um the the victim was not actually in the courtroom and was able to testify but jonathan actually drugged and raped um a girl girl an underage girl in a different county um and that, like I said, that's that's an example of what happens when you don't put the right guy in prison. And so after really tough three days of uh, and this is in the same exact courtroom, man, not in the same county, not just in the same county. It's in the same county, but it's the exact same courtroom that my life was taken away from me. You know, different judge this time. And there's 12 courtrooms and I was in that one. That's crazy. And so sitting there at the end of it, I thought I was going to get released. I thought I was going to be on an appeal bond because that's what we were fighting for. It wasn't to prove I was innocent. I mean, there was no way to prove I was innocent right then and there because that has to be done at a higher court, which is the court of criminal appeals. That's how it is in the state of Texas. Um, they're actually start trying to change that where, you know, circuit courts, district judges can, can actually declare you innocent and exonerate you without having to go to the higher court to get approval. Um, 
But that will, that hearing was just simply to present the new evidence. First and foremost, the goal was to have the judge agree and uh, to the claims that we were bringing forward. And secondary was to get an appeal bond to get me released while I waited for the process for the CCA, the Court of Criminal Appeals, the highest criminal court in the state of Texas to make the ultimate decision of three decisions, getting exonerated, getting retried, or going back to prison. And, um, you know, after three days of being, going through all that, man, not only was it hard for me to kind of rewatch the same detective, um, be exposed of his wrongdoings and all the things he could have done. You know what I mean? And then what was really sickening was seeing him make every excuse in the world why he believed that he was acting in good faith. And it just, it goes to show you, it's a, it's a testament, you know, and a byproduct of his training and the leader in the department. And of course, if you watch the documentary, you kind of get a taste of, um, you know, Sean Mannix, the chief of police in Cedar Park, you know, the arrogance and how he conducts himself and how pretty much his, he thinks his crap doesn't stink. And, you know, that, that was the guy he was taught by. And so on some level, I expect, um, you know, somebody who's trying to make stupid look smart. And like, that's ultimately what happened, man, is there was a lot of, I don't recalls and I don't knows, you know, when you have that, dude, you don't deserve to wear a badge. Well, and it's something I talk about a lot on here because that's exactly it. If you don't hold the bar when you hire people and then you don't hold the bar within that department that uh, ranks, you know, year by year, f- whether it's training wise, whether it's physical fitness wise, you know, whatever it is, that's what terrifies me. In the last place I worked, there was an element of that. We were in fire, not law enforcement. So it wouldn't be that someone would be wrongfully collected, um, convicted. It would be that someone would die. They would die in a fire, die in, you know, a mass shooting, whatever it was, because that complacency was allowed to foster from the up, you know, the top down. So this is such an important thing for people to see. And I, you know, I, I encourage everyone to watch Outcry, but this is exactly it. This is, this, what happened to you is what I talk about so often. If we don't hold ourselves accountable individually and as a department, people die. Children go to psych facilities that shouldn't go. High school kids end up in prison. And, you know, again, just to underline, this story, which we're going to wrap up in a second, so I know you got to go in a moment, has a happy ending somewhat, apart from obviously you carry what happened with you. Um, but there are so many people that didn't have that, you know, group that are still in prison now or are, are dead, like some of the people have had on, on the show. There's one, one gentleman whose son drew you know, passed because of a, a really, really shitty paramedic and, and some other medical malpractice. You know, that this is it. This is why we have to hold our own bar so high. So you you ended up, um, I mean, there's so much more, but obviously people can watch the documentary. You ended up getting to the point where you were physically um, not in prison anymore, but now you're waiting for that, that claim, as you said, of innocence or returning to prison. And for three years, every Wednesday, 
you had to check a website to see if you had your freedom back or not. So talk me, talk to me about being physically free, but not being free, what that mindset was like for you. And then let's walk through to, you know, finally getting that and, and, and where you and, and Gabriel and, you know, your, your, your future from here on in. Yeah. So, um, after that three days, after the three days of that hearing to prove, you know, all the evidence of my innocence, I eventually, two weeks later, I had to spend two weeks in jail after that hearing, um, for the, the judge to, to make a, uh, the right decision either to let me out and wait, uh, for the CCA's decision, or I have to sit in jail, you know, and to think back on it, how long it took for the CCA to finally make a decision. If I was in jail for that amount of time, God, county jail is totally different than prison. I mean, county jail sucks. I mean, prison, you can actually, you know, make best of what you got, but in county jail, you just, it's just a waiting game. So I had to wait about two weeks and then, um, man, the day came where, it was August 22nd, 2017, you know, Keith Hampton. Uh, now I get, I get called to go to an attorney visit by the sheriff. The sheriff comes and gets me from my cell. And he walks me down to the, to the visitation room, not in cuffs, not handcuffed. Normally I get handcuffed, but not in cuffs. And I go down to the, to the attorney visit room and I walk into that little booth and there's a little glass and I'm waiting for what's going on. And I have a really good feeling of what I, what I know is about to happen. And Keith Hampton, my attorney walks in and, uh, says, Hey man, you see what this paper is right here? And I look at it and I read it and it says, uh, the immediate release of Greg Kelly. And, and I just broke down crying and, and, and it just, it felt so good knowing that I'm about to go home. And, uh, I remember me and Keith took a picture with each other right then and there. I still have it. Um, and then he came up and followed me up to my cell to help me gather up my things and put them in a trash bag, um, walked down to the, to the back door of the county jail where apparently a bunch of people were waiting, you know, people that wanted to see me get released and news and media and family and friends, all the people I went to high school with that believed in me, um, were all waiting, you know, for me to be released and be rejoined to society. And, um, I, I eventually do. And it was just an awesome moment because I immediately went, I immediately went to Jake Bryden's house um, and we, uh, we had barbecue and we went surfing and uh, we went wake surfing on the lake. And I just, you know, I just enjoy, I wanted to do what being free meant and went out there and just had an awesome time. But, but, you know, eventually all good days come to an end and, uh, that emotionally high that I was feeling ended up coming down and I, uh, then went into a process of waiting for, you know, it was actually 80 something. It was like, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like 80 something weeks of having to check a website to see what the CCA is going to decide on my case. And you could, one of those verdicts could be you pack your stuff back into a trash bag, you walk back through that door and you go back to your cell. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a reality, man. The, the, the three decisions would have been 
exoneration, you know, very trial, or go back to prison for the remainder of your sentence. So being released and being rejoined with my family, it felt like, it felt great, man. I mean, but the thing about that is, you said it earlier, is that I wasn't actually free. You know, what it means to be free, it's, it surpasses far more than just being physically able to experience freedom. It's about knowing that you are free. You know what I mean? It's about knowing that you have the liberties to enjoy freedom, like get a job, you know what I mean? Have a car, get a mortgage, you know what I mean? Do all these things, own a gun. I mean, I couldn't even go get a gun if I wanted to, you know what I mean? Like I, I, it was, I was still a felon on probation or not probation on an appeal bond. So technically, if you go during that process, I was still an inmate at the win unit in Huntsville, Texas, you know, but I was relieved on bond. And so during that whole process, every dinner that I had with my family, they were great. I mean, every family dinner that I had, I wanted to have. Even though I was physically there enjoying the presence of the people I love, there was still a dark cloud over me. You know what I mean? That a big weight, that a thorn, I guess you can say a thorn that stuck in my side, like where, man, oh my gosh, I could, I could literally go back tomorrow. You know? And every Wednesday, the documentary crew would show up at my house with Starbucks and and, uh, you know, to make the situation a little bit better, you know, just to sit down and out of all things, out of all ways to check your fate for the rest of your life, you do it on a little freaking phone and you refresh a page on, on the Internet and you just refresh this list, you know, every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to see what the decision was for the CCA. And that happened Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday for 80-something Wednesdays. And if you watch the documentary, you can actually tell the time span of that time by how my hair was growing because I decided to grow my hair out that whole time. And I didn't do that for the documentary. I just did it because I was bald for three years. You know, and they cut my hair short every, every, you know, and I have short hair now, but um, I wanted to just grow my hair out because I wanted to. And so you could tell how long it was during that time span. And I, man, it was so tough because every Tuesday I couldn't eat every Tuesday night, every t- Monday or Wednesday morning I couldn't eat. I just, there's a pit in my stomach that today could go really bad or it could go really good. But naturally, you know, you're scared, you doubt, you know, you this it hasn't gone good. You know, I mean, most of the time for the past three years and I. um, But, you know, the crazy thing man, is that every time I refresh the page and I didn't see my my uh, my name on the list, it was like at the end of the day, you're like, man, I guess no good. No news is good news. Now, I, I have another week. You know what I mean? I have another week. I have another week. But it came down to that day, man, where my stress was at an all-time high because a little insight about um, the actual Wednesday in New York City in in our small little studio apartment. Gabriel was up there. The reason why we're up there is because Gabriel was up there doing a dance scholarship, and I decided to follow her up there. And uh, we're in a little studio in New York City, Manhattan, and 
the documentary crew would come up every Wednesday to, to cuz that was the that was the shot. I mean, that was the that was the the shot they needed. That was the ending to the story. You know, what's going to happen to Greg Kelly? So they needed to get that shot. And so being in that little studio apartment that week that I got, you know, that the decision was made, it was a very monumental week because stress was at, at the all-time high because the week before that, this specific case in Texas where this guy's on death row trying to fight for his life, his name is Rodney Reed, the CCA has declared a stay of execution for him. Well, this case, the Rodney Reed case, has developed into a national public case where people like Kim Kardashian has backed him for his innocence, right, and non-involvement in the crime. With all the evidence that, that proves that he maybe could have not done this, the CCA still paves the way and gives the green light for him to get executed on the day that he needs to get executed. And personally, from my, personally myself, I did not believe that he should have been executed on that day. I, I believe that they should have paused his case and look into it a little bit more. But seeing that and a person who's actually waiting for a decision by the CCA, seeing that, I was completely scared to death because now this thing's running in my head where it's like, man, if if they're going to go and pave the way for this guy to go get executed, I don't think they're going to lose a night of sleep if they go send somebody back to prison. So I live in Texas, man. I live in a very conservative state where, you know, their reputation is if you're going to do it anywhere, don't do it in Texas. Don't don't mess with Texas. And so I'm like, dude, man, I'm like, oh, man, I doubt, you know, what I mean, doubt, doubt, doubt. And I refreshed that page on November 6th of 2019. And man, I'm at the top of the list. And if you want to be anywhere on that list, you want to be on the top. Because the subcategory of relief granted is on the top of that list. And when relief has been granted, it means that there has been relief to your claims. They have agreed to them. Now, I don't know which claims they agreed to, but when I clicked on it, I knew at that moment before I clicked on that link, right, before that relief link right there, I've already been granted relief, that eliminates me going back to prison. Now I didn't know if I'm going to be exonerated or if they're going to retry me. And I click on it and all six of my claims say relief, 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 relief. And I look at the last one, which is the sixth one and the actual innocence claim. And I, I don't know if you know the history about the actual innocence claim, but, you know, getting the te- state of Texas to agree, uh, agree that you're actually innocent is like giving a bear a bath. It just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? And so. I think I think I, my case went down in history as the first one of the first cases to actually actually ever be declared actually innocent and exonerated um, without DNA evidence. You know, and so that was very monumental um, in the state of Texas because it just shows you what all the things that went wrong in this case. You know, from the start to the end, and all the things that were brought to light. Um, all the the terrible things that happened in the process, you know, judge, you know, judge, uh, or not judge, um, Jana Duty, the XDA, she she uh, she killed herself, you know, Jonathan McCarty, drugged and raped, more victims. I went to prison for three years. 
Um, a lot of terrible things, man. And, but if you look back on it, a lot, a lot of people ask me, you know, would I, would you ever have moved into that house? And immediately I, I would say, hell no. All right. Hail to the no. I wouldn't, I mean, if you told me that, Hey man, do you want to go through all this? Right. You want to live this nightmare for three years? I'm like, nope, I, I'm, I'm going to avoid that. Um, but at the same time, that's not how the world works. That's not how life works. Right. I mean, you go through a really crappy situation. You, you literally get put in the gates of hell and you know, you get told you have to go through this and make it to the other side. And I was placed and plopped right in the middle of, you know, the gates of hell and had to go through all of it. And to this day, you know, it's made me into the man that I am today. And I love the man that I am today. I know I'm a husband. You know I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a football player. I'm a, I'm a college athlete. Um, but, you know, a lot of people that go through my situation don't see this side. One, either they're killed, they give up, or they spend the rest of their time in prison because they gave up. You know, I'm very fortunate that I had the family and the support group that I had. I had to, I have the faith that I have because I, I feel like my faith is my foundation. The things I learned along the way that made me strong. And now that all waterfalls into the other challenges, the small little tiny challenges that I have for the rest of my life compared to the grand scale of things that I had to endure from the age of 18 to 23 years old. You know? Yeah, I mean, dude, there's nothing that could compare, you know? And so I think it's given me a perspective to enjoy freedom for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, Greg, I just want to say thank you. I mean, the the documentary, not only your story, but I got to say the documentary itself is one of the most beautiful pieces of television I've ever watched. I know they're nominated for an Emmy. Is that right? Yeah, it just got nominated last week for yeah, an Emmy. Much deserved. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge documentary fan. That's probably why Kate, uh, Kate and I get on well, too. But, um, you know, it, it was incredible. But it shows, like I said, the ripple effect of the wrong people in the wrong positions who don't have the humility and ownership to realize they screwed up because we all screw up and fix their mistakes. And, and you know, the, the, you're living the ripple effect. But I just want to say thank you for also being so courageous, telling your story and, you know, the, the elements of it. There's so much for people listening to learn from. It's a huge cautionary tale for all of us in the uniform professions as parents. I mean, you know, so many elements, but... You know, I hope now that your story can help advocate for other people in the same situations, whether it's preventative or whether it's reactive and, and help some other people that are in there. But thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. And thank you. I appreciate it, James. Thank you for having me.